Welcome in to the Thursday edition of the Daily Tap. Hope everybody is doing well. We're almost to the end of the week. We got a good show today. Talking about the Milwaukee Bucks and why it is time to get hot. We'll look back at the Bucks' big win against the Los Angeles Lakers. Talk about what we saw in that game and what it means for the Milwaukee Bucks moving forward. We'll also talk about Corbin Burns winning the NL Cy Young, major accomplishment there, and why those who are shitting their pants about Burns' innings pitch are probably overdoing it. Lastly, we will talk about the Green Bay Packers and and their key injuries. And when can we expect, or when should we expect, guys like David Bakhtiari, Zadarius Smith, and Jair Alexander back into the mix. But let's start with the Milwaukee Bucks. It was a good day for the Bucks. It was the first real good win for Milwaukee in a while. Um, Milwaukee has been struggling. They've had a ton of injuries. They had a long trip where it wasn't really that successful. Um, they get blown out by Atlanta. They do not have Giannis against Boston, where I think if Giannis plays, I bet they win that game, just given Giannis's ability to own the Celtics, but he had an ankle injury. They give Giannis a day off, and the Bucks are seven and eight. What I found interesting was Sports Center had a thing about the Lakers, where they said that a team who's been under five hundred this late in the season has not, has only won the NBA championship once. Now the Bucks have defied logic before. I remember uh, last year when the Bucks were going through that losing streak. I'd pointed out that not a lot of teams who've won championships have lost five straight games. The Bucks did lose five straight games last year. Can remember that panic zone, panic time, and the Bucks ended up going to win a championship. We know that story. So I do wonder if maybe these old rules aren't really applicable. Because here's the thing. Teams are not going to sort of play their guys every game if they don't have to. The guys are going to get rest. There are going to be moments where a Harden, a Durant, a Curry, a Draymond take a day off. Or a Luka or um, Chris Paul. Like They're not going to play 82 games. And so I do wonder if some of those older stats are skewed because we have all this data of guys who've played every game that they possibly can. Rest days are still a real thing. They haven't been a real issue, I think, this year in the NBA. I'm not surprised. I think once we get into January, February, March, we'll start seeing them pop up again. And hopefully they won't be obnoxious. We'll see. Uh, but I think for Bucks fans the last couple of weeks, it was obnoxious. You know, Giannis getting that ankle injured. George Hill had a dinged up. I think Ankle as well on Sunday where he missed Sunday's game. And it was like, all right, I understand that you're hurt, but when do we need to play through the pain? Chris Middleton, I think, was healthy from COVID, you know, last, middle of last week. Probably could have helped the Bucks against Boston or Atlanta. And they decided to keep Middleton home because I think they wanted Middleton to be fully healthy before going out on the basketball court again. And it paid off. I thought Middleton... Did not look sluggish. He did not look tired. Um, he had some major fourth quarter moments. So he was part of the reason why Milwaukee pulled back and or came not pulled back, pulled away in this game because he was able to just get Anthony Davis in a fucking blender and run a pick and roll where Giannis would get a mismatch and all of a sudden Giannis would have a clear path to the lane. 
Giannis had 47 points. He had nine rebounds. He was dominant in this basketball game, really from the start. He gave it to Anthony Davis right away, and there was really no coming back for the Lakers star. Anthony Davis looked like a midget out there. And when I say midget, I don't mean it inoffensive. I don't mean it's small. I mean that he just did not seem ready for the moment. He did not seem ready to live up to what Giannis is. And if you think back to that Rich Paul quote uh, last year or during the offseason where he said that if you put Anthony Davis on the Bucks, he would have done the same thing that Giannis did and won a championship. That could not be farther from the truth. Anthony Davis is not a number one on any successful basketball team. He's a number two on a good basketball team. And even then, I don't know how I feel about Anthony Davis as a number two. He does not have the killer instinct. He does not have that look of somebody who pissed, who got his Cheerios pissed in. Anthony Davis is a guy who just sort of goes with emotions and is happy to be a Laker. And they're, and as Mitch said yesterday, and he's really right, they're really lucky they won their Mickey Mouse title in 2020. Bob Portis also deserves some notes that he really played well in this game, especially in the first half. Uh, the Bucks have an issue if Brooke Lopez is going to be out for a very long time because Bobby can't guard the rim. Bobby struggled with it his entire career. I love Bobby. He's a good rebounder, but he has trouble you know, protecting the rim. Brooke Lopez protects the rim. Part of the reason why Brooke Lopez works in the pseudo-drop defense that Mike Budenholzer runs is because teams sort of run into Brooke, and Brooke becomes that brick wall. Bobby is not that brick wall. Bobby is like loose drywall out there or something like that. I have to have my Oak Trail guys help me out with a comparison there. Because Bobby isn't necessarily a defensive stopper at all. Um, he He's going to give up points in the paint. And that's it's an issue, right? And that's something the Bucks are going to have to fix. And I'm not sure if that means maybe sunsetting the Justin Robinson relationship and looking for a big guy you know, in the G League, I don't know what the Bucks have available. I know Mamu would be the first guy you think about. He is on the Bucks right now, but Mamu also really couldn't stop a cold in college, so I'm not necessarily advocating for him either. They need to find out what they have in that defensive, you know, and I wouldn't say backfield in a weird way, like an NFL, but they need to find out who in their interior defense can step up. Because I don't think it's Bobby Portis. And maybe that gives me hope that Brooke Lopez is going to be back soon because they haven't made any dramatic moves. But they desperately need Brooke Lopez back in terms of the long run. Next few games, which we're going to talk about here in a second, they don't need Brooke Lopez. But a time is going to come where Brooke Lopez is going to be very important to what Milwaukee does. La- the other last thing, just to be... Cr- I'm not, I'm not, I wouldn't say it is a critical... Uh, But Drew Holiday is definitely struggling. Now, I think Drew Holiday is dealing with maybe not being in the best shape right now. Uh, He looks a little bigger than usual. Um, Just I think he's going to have to play off some of that weight, which I don't blame him at all. Like, he won a ring. He also got a gold medal. Like, if Drew Holiday didn't really have an offseason and he kind of ate more than he usually does... He drank a little bit more than he usually does. I don't know if he drinks. Whatever, man. Like, that's fine. Like, that's not a problem. And I do think that he is sluggish. Um, He looks slow. 
He's not really great in terms of perimeter defending. His jump has not been great around the rim. Uh, Middleton also was shaky around the rim as well last night. And, and I think for Middleton, more so than Holiday, this is going to take some time. But Holiday's been really rough around the basket. And hopefully, you know, water finds its level there. Hopefully, he's able to get himself into shape. Suki is an amazing trainer. She does a really good job with the Bucks. Hopefully, by middle of next next month, we're going to see Drew Holiday back in playing shape and putting guys in clamps because that will be sort of the next phase for for Milwaukee. The Bucks just need to get hot. Like this is a time now for Milwaukee to really start to to dominate and really start to push forward here with their season. I know we kind of mentioned this a little bit yesterday, but it bears repeating. The Milwaukee Bucks have it all in front of them to kind of go on a run. They have a five-game homestand against some of the worst teams in the NBA. Oklahoma City twice, or Oklahoma City once, Orlando twice, and Detroit. All those teams are in the bottom, bottom tier of the net ratings. The next six out of eight games, the Bucks have teams in the net ratings of 20 or worse. Now, for those unfamiliar with net rating, it takes your offensive rating, so how you're doing offensively overall and how you're doing defensively, they bring that together, and that is your net rating. The Bucks are at 22 right now, so we have no real place to talk, but the Bucks have been net rating all-stars in the past. So you have eight, six of eight against teams with a net rating worse than 20. The only two times where you're facing a team with less than a net rating of 20 are Toronto and Denver. Both teams are dealing with injuries. Um, Toronto, to me, feels a little smoke and mirrors, just off to a good start. I don't know what's real with Toronto. Siakam's been in and out. Van Vliet, I think, is hurt right now. So you don't have Fred Van Vliet, which is a definite issue for Toronto. He might be back probably by the time the Raptors and the Bucks get together. Um, but in Denver, Will Barton was doubtful yesterday. They don't have... Uh, Michael Porter Jr., they're kind of playing with sort of just a second-tier unit, and it's basically Nikola Jokic and everybody else. We'll see if that's the same next week when the Bucks and Nuggets get together. Denver has not been a fun spot for Milwaukee in the past, though, um, so hopefully they can kind of cure their mountain woes. It's very weird, too, that the Bucks are going out west for one game total, and then they're going back to Indiana. Also, it's the day day after Thanksgiving, so that that game to me it looks looks and smells and feels like a loss. But we'll see. You never you, you really never know. But this Milwaukee Bucks team can definitely pull it back together. And I think the Lakers game was the first time in a long time that the Bucks sort of looked like the Bucks, and probably since that Brooklyn game, right? Where we saw that Bucks team show their teeth a little bit, show why they are one of the best teams in the NBA, why when the chips are down come April, May, the Bucks are going to be right there. And I think the best is yet to come with this team. I think that we're going to think about this in at Christmas and say, why do we doubt this team? Why do we worry that this team wasn't going to pull it together and that the Bucks are going to be starting to hunt for a top seed in the Eastern Conference. I'm not worried yet until probably the new year. If the Bucks are still middling, if the Bucks are still 500 around the new year, then yeah, we have to have a conversation. If they haven't found their hot streak, sure. 
this is the time for them to do it. And this was a great first step. You lose this game, you're six and nine, and you start asking a couple questions of like, where where is it? Is it just that everybody's on cruise control besides Giannis? Um, that wasn't the case. The Bucks were, they had their piss and they were ready to go. Um, after, you know, a rough start, it was 22 to 12 early on to the Lakers, the Bucks roared back. They were up nine um, at halftime. Third quarter was a little rough, but then fourth quarter, they got it done. So I, I think this team is on the precipice of sort of starting out something special. So let's hope that's the case, and let's hope they continue it against a frisky Oklahoma City team on Friday night. Moving on to the Milwaukee Brewers, Corbin Burns has won the Cy Young Award for the National League. There was much debate whether Corbin Burns would get that award over a guy like Zach Wheeler or Walker Bueller or teammate Brandon Woodruff. Woodruff finished fifth. The reason being was the innings pitched. Uh, People made a big deal about Corbin Burns being 19th in the National League in innings pitched. Some think that that is a big deal. Some think that skews Corbin Burns' stats. You put that in comparison to Zach Wheeler. Zach Wheeler has pitched over 200 innings while Burns is near, I'll pull up his innings numbers. It's, It's not great. I have him with me. He's only pitched 167 innings. So there is a thought in the community that we've gone too far with analytics. Jeff Passan was ranting and raving on Twitter yesterday. I like Jeff Passan. I think Jeff Passan does good work. I think sometimes Passan can be a little bit Schefter Woj-like where he's trying to get headlines. I think he's more of a reporter though than those two guys. Uh, He still writes. And I appreciate that part of him. But Passan was wrong here. Think giving Zach, crowning Zach Wheeler was really sort of odd to me. Because, first of all, the Philadelphia Phillies did not win their division. The Philadelphia Phillies did not make the playoffs. So why should we be awarding mediocrity? I understand Robbie Ray won in the American League and the Blue Jays did not get to the, the playoffs either. But... At the same time, I, I wonder how weird that would look if you're like, all right, we're going to give it to Robbie Ray and Zach Wheeler, two guys who played on teams that did not make it to the postseason. That's odd. I feel like even though you only pitch one out of five days, you should have a reason of why your team was successful. You should be the leader of a pitching staff of success. Like That should matter, right? And I understand that Wheeler probably got screwed by a bad bullpen in Philadelphia. I understand that Robbie Ray also had probably similar problems. That doesn't matter, though. You, I, I just think winning matters. Like Not necessarily pitcher wins, but the idea that your team should be successful if you're a Cy Young or an MVP. Like I, I just, To me, that should matter more than it, I think sometimes it does in baseball. Like, I don't think Mike Trout always should get rewarded because he's kind of a mediocre player. Or not mediocre, I should say that. <laughs> he, he, is a me- he plays on a mediocre team. And I think when you look at that and you're like, okay, like, why should we be rewarding that? Like, why should we be rewarding this idea of, of almost mediocrity? And I understand that he the point Passan's trying to make is well, if Burns pitched more innings, his stats would look entirely different. 
Again, like we kind of talked about yesterday, if ifs and buts were candy and nuts. If my dick, my aunt had a dick, she'd be my uncle, okay? Like, this is one of those things where it's so subjective. It's all based on who is doing this, who's doing the voting, who is voting for all of this, this type of shit. And they're telling you right now that innings pitched is not that big of a deal. And I'm okay with it. It's not like Corbin Burns didn't have quality starts. Corbin Burns had 18 quality starts. Do you know how many Zach Wheeler had? 20. Quality starts for those listening at home are six innings pitched. And then there are some other qualifiers of success that would qualify it as a quality start. But it still means you pitch six innings. So even though Corbin Burns might not have the innings pitched that a guy like Passan might want. He has the quality starts. Passan just missed that entirely. And you look at just sort of some of the numbers and it, it's pretty obvious why Corbin Burns won this award. He had a better K to K9 rate by a long shot. He was the best one not only in the National League but in baseball. It was a ridiculous 12.6 his walks per nine, 1.8 to Wheeler's 1.9. His homers per nine innings, 0.38 to Wheeler's 0.68. I'll get to that in a second. He left about the same amount of people on base as Wheeler did. And then his home runs to fly balls was a 6.1. Wheeler's was a 10.8. Gave up a lot more home runs. He also had one of the best FIPS that you have ever seen in baseball. FIP kind of takes out all of the all the noise, and Corbin Burns had the best one in baseball at 1.63. Wheeler isn't even close. Wheeler's at 2.58. They're similar in war at 7.5 and 7.3. His XFIP is at 2.3, while Wheeler's is at 2.8. And then if you get into some of the other stats. Yes, Zach Wheeler beat him in strikeouts. He does have that to his his resume. Zach Wheeler also had 169 hits. Zach Wheeler had 72 runs. Now, if you wanted to do the math and you extrapolate Burns' numbers and you say, okay, add as many innings as Wheeler pitched, where would Corbin Burns' numbers be? Yeah, maybe. But again, it does. I think the quality starts is a huge part of this. It's the huge thing that has to be realized is that Corbin Burns still pitched as many good games as Zach Wheeler did. If your quality starts are at 18 and the other guy's at 20, that is not apples to oranges. That's apples to apples. You are a similar player. And Burns deserves that sort of recognition. And the season that Corbin Burns had was dominant. There were not many games where you watch Corbin Burns and he looked mortal. Yes, Corbin Burns did not pitch game four of of the NLCS. And that will be something that a lot of people will wonder about. That a lot of sort of the, let's say, not necessarily all in baseball fans, the casual fans, will say, well, Burns didn't want it, didn't want it when it mattered the most. I want Corbin Burns to be healthy. At the end of the day, I don't want Corbin Burns putting himself out there where he feels like there's a chance he could tear his UCL or he could tear his rotator cuff. 
And Corbin Burns pitched the innings they did because they had a six-man rotation at some point. The Brewers had a really good pitching staff. They did not need to rely on Corbin Burns as much as Zach Wheeler was needed to be relied on in Philadelphia. We went back to that bullpen. They had a bad bullpen. They have an old-school manager in Joe Girardi. So, of course, Zach Wheeler is going to get more innings than Corbin Burns. Corbin Burns was absolutely a pain in the ass to deal with. When a team saw Corbin Burns on their schedule, they knew they were in trouble. But when it came to Zach Wheeler, I don't know if we were saying the same thing. And that's dominance personified. And so we can be mad about the innings pitched. We can throw a fit. But Corbin Burns was the best pitcher in the National League last year. And to me, it wasn't even close. Wrapping up the show with the Green Bay Packers, we have a very interesting a uh, couple of games with the Green Bay Packers. Uh, they have the Minnesota Vikings on deck. Packer Vikings coming up here on Sunday. It should be a really good matchup. Uh, Vikings probably have a little bit of the kitchen sink game to them and a potential of the Vikings sort of trying to play themselves back in the playoff race. They will not have Jair Alexander, Zedarius Smith, or maybe David Bakhtiari. We don't know about David Bakhtiari. Uh, Matt LaFleur says he is day-to-day um, with an, with the back or the ACL injury, not the back injury. And that there is a potential we will get David Bakhtiari, but there is a potential that we will not. Um, they have been very cagey about Mr. Bakhtiari's health. Should the Packers be at fault for that? Absolutely not. There should, no, there should really be no reason that we need all the info on David Bakhtiari. And David Bakhtiari's health should not be something that we are, you know, pounding down the doors and demanding answers. It was a serious ACL injury. The difference between Brooke Lopez, right, where it's back soreness, versus David Bakhtiari coming off an ACL tear, Zedaria Smith coming off back surgery, and Jair Alexander coming off an AC joint injury, those are all significant injuries. If Brooke Lopez had a tear in his back muscle, I think everyone would be leaving Brooke Lopez alone. But because we're saying it's back soreness, we demand answers. I don't think we're doing the same for the Green Bay Packers. But to figure out where we might get these key players back is a really interesting sort of look. So Green Bay has a bye in two weeks. Um, it's a very late buy. Um, I hate... The fact that the buys are so late this season. Uh, the ba- the buys being as late as they are kind of bothers me. Um, it's the old man in me. It's like seeing the 40 teams potentially in the NFL. I was like, what? 40 teams? Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me that we're going to look at 40 teams in the NFL? That seems fucking ridiculous. All right? And so... I think there is something to that where I'm like, why are we having buys in December? We should not have buys in December. Like the bye weeks should happen from late September to end of October, in my opinion. But the NFL wants to make sure, you know, their premier teams are involved. I actually think there are bye weeks after the Packers. I think there's a bye week on the 12th too, which is crazy. It's, it's absurd. But regardless, you have a bye week in two weeks. You have two 
big games against the Minnesota Vikings where you could establish yourself, basically put yourself on the right path to win the division. I'm not saying that Green Bay doesn't already have the division locked up, but if they were to lose this game, Minnesota has an outside shot. Minnesota would be two back. They'd have a tiebreaker. Minnesota knows they're playing the Packers at the end of the season, so they're going to have a real opportunity to maybe steal that division later in the year if the Packers go in a tailspin, which is not expected, but you never know. Then you have the Rams, where the Packers could get a tiebreaker against the Rams, and then they'd have a tiebreaker against really whoever wins the NFC West, whether it's the Rams or Arizona. And I think that's really important when it comes to the weather. Because if the Packers are able to welcome Los Angeles or Arizona to Lambeau Field in January, they are not going to have a fun time. So that, to me, are very important games. And then you have a week off, and then you have the Bears. And the Bears, who knows? The Bears could be fighting for a playoff spot, or the Bears could be completely out of it and looking ahead to the offseason, looking ahead to a new coach, and sort of just making sure Justin Fields has a good finish, good push to the season. Now, for injury's sake, with David Bakhtiari, Jay Alexander, and Zadarius Smith, I do not expect Alexander Smith to be back before the bye, bye week. I think there is no way... We are getting either player before the bye week. I think that will be a fat chance. For Bakhtiari, Matt LaFleur thinks he's going to play. He obviously said, I sure hope so. They obviously activated Bakhtiari. If they really think that Bakhtiari is not ready, they could obviously IR him and put him on the IR for the next three weeks. That would take you Minnesota, Los Angeles, the bye week, and say, all right, now we're going to put put." put it on the Bears week and say he could come back for the Bears. He's practicing. I'm sure he's going to tell the team he feels good. I don't think Green Bay wants to put David Bakhtiari out there until he's absolutely ready to go. And yeah, the Packers offensive line has been shaky. They were good against Seattle. But I think they look at what they have in their offensive line unit and say, we can survive without David Bakhtiari. We can kind of do our best to manage without him. Now there are games where it's like, wow, we really need Bakhtiari back. But I think that's what they're telling Dave, where they're like, we do not need you to be back right away. If you need more time, let us know, and we can get you ready whenever you need it. So we'll see if this week's the week for Bakhtiari. As for Zadaria Smith, I think it's more likely that Zadaria Smith is back for like Cleveland or Baltimore or something like that. And maybe maybe he's working towards Baltimore. We know Zadarius Smith is a weird guy. Playing against a former team that didn't want to sign him to a big deal, to me, would matter a lot to Zadarius Smith. It would be a ton of Instagrams, all this shit. I wouldn't rule out that December 19th game. I think that, to me, would be my target for Zadarius Smith. Jerry Alexander, again, I think it's really similar to Bakhtiari. With the way the secondary has been playing, the success of Kevin King, the success of Eric Stokes, Rasul Douglas has been great. The two safeties have been excellent. They're probably telling Jair, like, take your time. We don't really need you to kind of rush it. Until you're absolutely ready, we do not want you out there. But I do think you'll get Jair Alexander before the season is over. 
So I'm not worried at all about any three of those injuries. I think the Bakhtiari one is a little frustrating because he got pulled off uh, the pup list. He then gets activated. We're all like, okay, David Bakhtiari's back. And still, there isn't any answers. So that's a little frustrating. And I I guess I would say, and I have no idea what the rules are on this, but if Bakhtiari isn't going to be able to go for the next three weeks, just put him on IR and then bring somebody else up. I think that would be... I think that would be the best case scenario for the Green Bay Packers. But we'll see. We'll see what happens. And we got a long way to go. All right, tomorrow we will talk betting preview, Badgers, and Packers. We will also talk maybe a little betting preview for the Bucks. And I don't know. I don't know if we'll have lines for Marquette or Wisconsin for the weekend. Uh, UWM plays tonight, actually, against Florida, their 14 point dog. If you want to hop on the Panthers. Uh, but we'll talk about all the betting angles for the Wisconsin sports teams. I also want to do a Justin Jefferson segment about a what if Justin Jefferson was a Packer. We'll do that before. And if anything else comes across our wire, we'll certainly talk about that as well. All right. Take care, Tappers. Have yourself a great Thursday. We'll be back tomorrow. See you. Bye.